Ordering fire, two wreck of lamb, one red snapper. Yes, chef. Yes, chef. Here we go. New episode of Beyond the Pass. We got a heavy hitter in here today, boys. Yeah. Uh, from Japan, Abram Clout, the ramen beast. Uh, lucky, lucky to have this guy on. Nate hooked it up. Uh, his buddy from around the way. Uh, I'm Kyle McClure from Vantage Venues. We're up here in the podcast studio, 27th floor. Um, my buddy, my playing partner, Nathan Hogan. Fix on Instagram. You can get me, Kyle, double underscore McClure at Instagram. And please, guys, Instagram, southern underscore crown underscore smokehouse. I need those follows. Just rush off a new pop-up. So, guys, please check us out. Uh, Abram, man, awesome, awesome to have you here. I'm super stoked. Uh, Nate's told me a little bit about you. So he he knows a little bit, but I'm, I'm excited to hear the story, man. Uh, we're really happy to have you here, bud. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, it's good to be here. Let's yeah, do this. Abram, good, good to see you, man. You know, I think we met, uh, I was thinking about that, 2009 maybe, right? 2009, yeah. I think, through a mutual friend. Um, the first time I met you might have been on the basketball court in Hong Kong, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah we <laughs> yeah. have a mutual friend, Kyle, uh, a guy named Dwayne Kirkley. Uh, I mean, we could probably do a 10-hour um, podcast oh, on him alone. He's a... Uh, He's a special, special dude, but we'll uh, save that for another day. But yeah. I mean, After Abram, this is over, Abram, you're going to have to tell me the stories about how you used to do uh, Legend <laughs> stories. Yeah, stories about putting Nate on skates or what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Don't even get me started. Don't even get me started. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so we, Abram and I met in 2009 through mutual friend playing hoops. Um, you know, we never even talked ramen much at all. Um I was a little naive to ramen back then, um, you know, maybe a, a little bit snobbish, if you will, unintentionally. And um, then uh, impromptu trip to Japan. I'm like, hey, Abram, I'm, I'm going to come to Japan to see you. He's like, oh, cool, man, anytime. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going to be on a flight here in like two hours. <laughs> and he set it all up and and uh, he took me to my first ramen place. And, and I definitely had a different look at it from there. So, but uh yeah, man, we're, we're really excited to have you on here. It's just great to see you in general um, on a podcast or not. So um, Kyle's going to hit you with uh, a couple of questions. We're going to alternate back and forth. And again, good to see you, Kyle. Fire away, my friend. Yeah, man. So like, I'm just going to try to not sound like a ramen novice compared to you two. But I just like, first of all, just want to hear like the come up story, man, like where it started for you. Uh, Nate said you went to the University of Arizona. Is that correct? Yeah, that's um, right. And so you uh, you did some Japanese stuff there. Like, how did it all start? What started the journey for you? Uh, sort of hit us with a little bit of that. Yeah, um, I was basically just like any other kid, like white kid in suburban America. Um, and my introduction to ramen was like top ramen, instant noodles, you know, um, like was down with the cup noodles when I was like a little kid and then was down with like the four for a dollar. Um, when I came home from school, you know, that was like the one thing I knew how to cook growing up. So ramen, like this is like, I feel like this is like, an, this is, is not like a special story. Like so many people probably have like the exact same relationship with ramen, you know, growing up. So um, yeah, I mean, I liked Asian food. I was super into Wu-Tang. Asia was kind of like a dope, like far away like exotic place and randomly I studied I took Japanese as an elective at university I had studied Spanish in high school um and I was like yo Japanese kind of seems like kind of wild like I'll check it out thought it was interesting um before I knew it I was majoring in Japanese and then I figured like, oh, since I'm majoring in Japanese, I might as well like take a trip there and study there for a little bit. Still like had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Didn't know if I wanted to move to Japan or like get a job in that field. Was just kind of studying like where my heart was and what like where my interests were. Um, 
And I studied, I did like a, a summer, like a short one month program studying at a university in Japan before my senior year. And that was when I had real ramen for the first time. And that was when like, yeah, my mind exploded. <laughs> and I knew I wanted to come back to Japan and live there for at least like a year or two. But I had no idea that I'd be there as long as I am now. So yeah, that's kind of like how the story starts, I guess. <laughs> okay, so you studied, so you studied in Japan for your senior year, then you went back and regrouped, and then then you'd be like, okay, I wanna I wanna stay there a bit longer, correct? I, I was majoring in Japanese at University of Arizona, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I uh, figured it would be a good idea to do like a study program and get some extra credits over like the summer. Um, so I decided to do it between my junior year and my senior year that mm. summer. I had like three months off of school, and I didn't do it through my university. I did it through another university. Uh, it was the University of Kansas. Another great okay. basketball school, by the way. Jayhawks. <laughs> um, and they had they had a like just a program that was like lined up with my schedule. It was right right outside of Tokyo, um, just like south of Yokohama. So it was in like a good central area, and it worked out. And I could transfer the credits. So that program was, I think, it was one month. It was like it was less than four weeks, and. I did that. And then I actually did totally separately. I did a homestay. I stayed at some random Japanese, uh, like a friend that I had met in Arizona when I was a freshman in the dorms. And we yeah. had like kept in contact via like email. Yeah. I ended up staying at his house with his family for a week after my study program was finished. So yeah. I stayed in Japan. It felt like it was that whole summer. It was like maybe a month, a month and a half. Mm -hmm. And after that, I went back to Arizona finished my senior year but i knew like all right after i get my degree i want to come back to japan at least for like one year we'll see what happens and that was it so what what, what year are you now i was guessing i i would want to say 17 18 at that point now 15 to 18 years you've been there how long has it been now so this was i graduated from university of arizona in 2003 in mm -hmm. may yeah. And I came to uh, Japan in February of 2004. So I was 20, I was like 22, 21, 20, 22 at that time. Yeah. Um, so I've been in Japan, what, 17 and a half years now. Craziness. <laughs> Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I got a question. So a double, double sort of side of question. So when you first rolled up in Japan for the first time, um, what, but what was it like, you know, for going from, I mean, San Francisco is a pretty big town. What, uh, what city were you based out of at university? Where's, where's the university of Arizona? What city is it in? Um, Tucson. Okay. So Tucson. So tell me about when you first rolled into Tokyo, what was it like? Was it excitement, confusion, insanity? And then I also want to know, uh, the, the first bowl that you had, um, like give me some details on sort of first getting Japan yeah. and that first bowl I'm curious about. So as, as far as like the transition into Tokyo, oh man, like, I mean, Tucson is a college town where like the yeah. city kind of like re revolves around the university. Great college town, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, and San Francisco is like, you know, like a decent sized city. But I mean, compared to Tokyo, it is like a, a speck in the ocean, you know, like you could you live in Tokyo for like a year and you realize that you like haven't even scratched the surface of like what is out there you know it like mm -hmm. takes you a year it takes you a couple years just like to get your feet wet and like for like the like that uh i don't know it's like for the always always for foreigners like the first like usually like two three four years they live in japan there's like this glow in their eyes where like everything's exciting. And it's like, no, no matter what you're doing, it's a new experience, you know? So it takes like, that's what I'm saying. It takes like three, four years just to like feel like you're not super new and fresh there, you know? And like, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it is massive. So massive mm -hmm. of a city. Mm -hmm. I can't even, mm -hmm. can't even, it's never ending depth, you know? Like you can eat just in ramen, you can eat a new ramen shop every day for the rest of your life in Tokyo and you can't eat them all because there's more than 365 new ones opening each year, you know? 
So just eating the new ones, just eating the new ones, you can't eat them all. Like, let yeah. alone like repeating and like comparing and being like, all right, now I got to go back and try like the, the second menu and the third menu and like the seasonal menu, you know, what, a, what percent, what percentage of those shops are rubbish and what percentage of those shops are good? Like, is it diluted or is, is for the most part, are they all, like I mean, the ones that are rubbish go out of business. There are a lot of like chains, you know, that kind of like, you know, the same way that, you know, like to some people like McDonald's or Burger King are rubbish, but yeah, yeah. You know, at the same time, they're like successful businesses, you know, sometimes you like, can keep going. Back, right? <laughs> yeah, I could talk, you know, I could like talk smack about like some of the big chains, but, you know, they're successful. So, I mean, there are a lot of shops that close for sure. I say like there's 300 and at least 300 new ones opening in Tokyo each year. There's about 300 that close in Tokyo each year at the same time. Okay. So. There are shops that close, but Japan is very saturated, over overly saturated with ramen shops. If you include like uh, Chinese restaurants where like there's ramen on the menu and they're serving ramen, but it's not necessarily a ramen shop per se. If you include restaurants like that, you can say there's like 30,000 restaurants in Japan that are ramen shops, 30,000. Think about that number. That's so crazy how many. So. You know, going back to like the depth of Tokyo, like you can die trying to eat all the ramen. Now, what about all the other food like sushi, like tempura? So Tokyo is crazy, just, just such a crazy city. Um, but to, to answer your question, Nate, about uh, some of the first bowls I had. The first bowl that I really like stuck that I'll always remember when I was still an exchange student when I was living at the dorms in Kanagawa, it was a bowl of miso ramen. And the shop is not like a famous shop. It's called the uh, Aji no Miso Ichi. There is a chain called Miso Ichi. This has nothing to do with that chain. So sometimes people say like, oh, I know that shop Miso Ichi. It's a chain, but no, not, not the chain. But anyway, random, random miso ramen shop, not special, not famous, but you know, for someone that had eaten like 10,000 bowls of instant ramen, cup ramen in the States, when you have that first real bowl in Japan that's made with fresh ingredients, it blows your mind, you know? So I ate in like one month, probably, you know, 20 or 30 bowls of miso ramen. And I thought it was so awesome. And then after that, exchange program was done at that university and i moved to my friends apart uh in with my friend's family and i had a homestay and it was on a total different side of the city and he said what do you want to eat and i was like oh i love ramen he took me to a different shop and this shop is called haksan ramen now it's closed and you it was a late night place you didn't even eat inside the shop there was no shop you would have to get your order your bowl they'd pass it to you and you'd eat it on the sidewalk, either like sitting on like a stool or sitting like on the hood of your car. And it was a greasy tonkotsu shoyu, chunks mm. of pork fat suspended in the soup, salty, mm. really good. Like if you're drunk late night, Tokyo style bowl, like completely different from the bowl of miso ramen that I had been eating and loving for a month. So I had been just like crushing miso ramen, the same bowl over and over. Like this shop is awesome. And then my friend takes me to another shop and it's tonkotsu shoyu. Like to it's not even like they're the same food, you know, it's like a different, totally different flavors, but awesome. At the same time, I was hooked from that point on. Um, so, I mean, I could tell you stories about loves I had with shops from then on. I started when I moved to Japan, the easiest way to get a visa. Um, if you have a college degree is just to become an English teacher. You know, you can quit immediately as soon as you get that visa. But just getting the visa is important. So that's what I did. Signed up to teach. And from the from like the first day, every time I'd meet people, I'd always have them t like teach me about their favorite ramen shop and be like, yo, where's your favorite ramen shop? Tell me about it. And I'd go and I'd eat them. So 
that was it. That was how it happened. Those first two ramen shops you just told us about, um, I know you said one's closed now, but do you think if you went back to those two today, they'd, they'd still hold up? And now knowing what you know and eating all the ramen you've eaten, do you think those would still hold up? Or No, they would not. They would not. I, the, sec- okay. the first one, Ajinomiso Ichi, which is actually in Kanagawa Prefecture, I went years later. Um, and I remember like it was nostalgic and I was like, wow, yeah. this brings me back. But I also remember being like, damn, I've come a long way. Like now I understand this world like so much more. And I realized that in the world of ramen, this bowl is nothing special. <laughs> That's the thing with nostalgia too, especially um, if there's been such a long time. And so you go back to that. It's like sometimes nostalgia is just like, you don't, it doesn't hold up after a while, right? Like, nothing feels as good and you don't remember anything as well as like when you have this really great nostalgic time or moment in your life. And then sometimes, right, you go back and there is just a little bit of disappointment. And then, like you said, you've had so much other ramen, uh, gone to so many other shops. It's just that, but I mean, obviously both of those shops were really important at the time, right? That's what sort of started it all. Yeah, there are, I mean, I think like the atmosphere and the mood definitely, has an effect and there are places where even like if you're judging the bowl on deliciousness alone it might not rank amongst like the best of the best but there's something about the history or something about you know some connection or you know just a feeling that you might have that makes it it special and i think that's not with ramen you know like that's with a lot of different types of food so absolutely. Yeah. yeah absolutely like like uh, the gachi like uh, like gachi there um they have like a wrestling and Michael Jordan or Michael Jackson vibe in there. Right. So I remember asking you, uh, Gachi is the shop that Abram hooked me up with to work at for a couple of weeks. And I said, Oh, how does this bull? Is this in your like top 10? And he's like, no, 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 it's not like ever so humbly. He said, it's not like ranks. Cause I didn't know how popular of a shop it was, but the vibe in the shop was cool because it was like, like wrestling eighties and wrestling and Michael Jackson was plastered all over the walls and playing Michael Jackson playlists all day long. So you know, maybe it didn't rank up there on, on like flavor explosion, but the vibe in that shop was, was, was pretty cool for sure. Um, so let's take a step back, Abram. So growing up, right. You come from San Francisco, um, mom and dad, you said you have Italian roots and your brother's a chef. So give me like a quick sort of uh, vision on, on, you know, the food culture in your home, who cooked, what kind of food did you eat? Was it simple? Was it extravagant? You know, I'm, yeah. I'm curious about that because we've never talked one-on-one about that. So I'm pretty curious about that. Yeah, it's actually interesting you asked me because I don't know if anyone's ever asked me much about this, but I come from a family of excellent chefs, uh, mm-hmm. Italian grandmother. Um, my father was an ex- is, an, is an excellent cook. Uh, my mother mm-hmm. has always been an excellent cook. And my brother has been an excellent cook his whole life and is arguably the best chef of the family now. Um, mm-hmm. so I've always been around food. I think from an early age, I was eating gourmet food, eating like sushi, eating like ethnic, like grimy restaurants in like Chinatown and San Francisco and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I credit my parents a lot for kind of exposing me to like international food and like new, new cuisines and new experiences from an early age. Um, going back to my brother though, my brother, uh he went to the the cia the culinary institute of america and ended up interning which one napa or in in new york which one did he go to in hyde park new york first he worked at the lark the lark creek inn somewhat of a well-known restaurant in northern california um and i can't remember the chef the, the chef's name there but i guess that chef took a liking to my brother and wrote a letter to the CIA and got my brother in. My brother went to the Culinary Institute, ended up working for, he did his his, uh, externship at uh, Gramercy Tavern in New York, Tom Colicchio's restaurant. Yeah, we've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, after after he graduated, he he went back home to the Bay Area and helped open up a sustainable fish restaurant in Sausalito um, called fish that the whole concept was sustainable fish. And they had a boat where they'd go out and catch the fish 
and serve it at the restaurant. They'd only serve, you know, fish that's like line caught and fresh and local and whatnot. And my brother worked there for several years and then got recruited away to become the sous chef and help open up a newer, larger restaurant in San Francisco in the, the Embarcadero called Water Bar, which is mm-hmm. somewhat of a well-known restaurant now. Um, so my brother worked at Water Bar for a few years. He got recruited away by someone at Google to open a restaurant on Google's campus in Silicon Valley. Um, worked at Google for a few years, got recruited away by Square to run the program, the food program at Square in downtown San Francisco. Google has a bunch of eateries on their campus that all the employees can use. Um, Square has almost like an in-house cafeteria that's free for the employees. A lot of the tech companies have one, like programs like this. So my brother became in charge of the entire food program at Square's head office. Wow. Did that for a few years and then got recruited away by Yahoo to become a director of food, um, managing the global budget for Yahoo and how they spend their money on food um, at all the Yahoo offices around the world did that. And then Yahoo got bought by Verizon. So now he does a similar job for Verizon. And it's crazy how my brother started out as like just a chef. And now he's like (laughs) dealing with these crazy food budgets and whatnot. Um, So, yeah. So I've kind of known the whole time, like what it takes to like be in the restaurant industry, how crazy it is and how I knew I never wanted to get into it at all. Mm. And I was like, screw that business. For real. So. <laughs> I've said that a million times myself. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, and and myself, as far as cooking, I can cook, I can cook top ramen. Um, <laughs> other than that, like I'm not much of a chef. I've always been well fed and I've always like gone out to eat. So yeah, call me spoiled or whatnot, but yeah. I'm the worst cook in the family. Um, so as far as like the journey to Japan, ta- uh, taking Japan in school or Japanese in school, um, if it wasn't Japanese, if it wasn't the country of Japan, is there another one that sticks out? Like if you want to go in, is there another country, uh, another, another culture, uh, another food scene that you could have seen yourself dive into the way that you have with Japan and Japanese uh, stuff? Or is, is this the only one that you could have seen yourself doing? That's a really good question. You know what? I don't, I think it was either Japan or nothing. Looking back at the time, <clears throat> I there was a connection I had with Japan. I loved Asia and I love Asia. Like if I couldn't live in Japan now, I would easily, I could and I would easily move and live in another city in another country in Asia you know, someplace like Hong Kong or Bangkok, or I don't know, we could, we could have this conversation, but I love Asia. Don't get me wrong. But at the time in my life, when I was in my twenties and I didn't really know much about Asia, I don't know. There was like, I felt some kind of connection to Japan and especially with the food. Once I, once I got to Japan and I lived here and I, and I ate the food here, I realized how less the quality is overseas in so many areas and just how people don't do things the right way when it comes to like handling food and respecting the ingredients. And I like almost like, yeah, I was just like, you know what? I want to spend my time in Japan. So I don't know. I didn't know that before I came, but I felt a connection. And I think if it hadn't been Japan, yeah, I don't know if I would have just like made the leap to like another place, like say China or Thailand or like one of these other countries. I didn't have the draw that I had to Japan. So, um, yeah, just so, to add on, cause when I have one thing that the, the food quality in Japan is mind boggling. Um, I remember when I first saw Abram, we went to see him in 2010. We were under the influence and we just went to the 7 Eleven to grab a bite to eat. And there's a warmer of like fried chicken and croquettes in there. And I was like, I have really low expectations. And I was drunk. I'm like, give me some of those. And I took a bite. I'm like, what the hell is this? This is 7-Eleven. It's not supposed to taste like this. And the, like the 7-Eleven 
all the way through to three Mission Star restaurants, they just do it right. You've the seven food in Seven Eleven is like a like a high end gourmet market here in Toronto. It's just absurd the quality and the standards that are there, and that's why I've always been intrigued with Japanese food, as Abram just has said as well. They're not going to put anything out from Seven Eleven all the way to the to the, the top of the food scene. They're not going to push shit out. Period. Not even the warming boxes at Seven Eleven. That fucking chicken was just dynamite, right? So. I mean, what, what better of a food scene to be involved with day to day, Abram, man? It's just, I'll never forget that, man. And I tell my students that as well. It's just next level standards and discipline and, and drive there. It's crazy. So if, if there was no ramen, right, let's just, let's go down that road. Um, there was no ramen. It wasn't a thing. And you showed up in Japan. What food do you think would be the one for you? Like what style, what Japanese style of food? Would it have been if it wasn't ramen? Would it have been something else? Was there is there something else that like your number two that you could sell? Um, I think my probably my favorite food is sushi and not ramen. Okay. Um, yeah, I really like sushi, but I don't want to eat sushi every day. Sushi is like a uh, more of a special occasion kind of thing. You know, I'm cool eating sushi once a week. Um, ramen is more. There's so much more variety. Yeah. But if there to answer, sorry, not to get sidetracked to answer your question, if it wasn't ramen, what else would it be? I don't know. I'm a variety kind of guy. So it's not one thing like there. It's never been one thing. And even with ramen, it's not one thing. Like, you know, when I eat ramen, I usually eat a new at a new place every time. So I'm not it doesn't feel like I'm ever eating the same thing every day. Like people say like, Oh, how do you eat ramen every day? I eat a new shop every day. So it's a different bowl every single time I'm eating something different. So it's like, yeah, like we could, if I'm in Kyushu, yeah. And I eat like 10 bowls of tonkotsu in a row. It gets a little, you know, it gets a little tiresome just eating tonkotsu, but, um, I don't know. I've always, I've always loved eating, and drinking the variety and I love different things and I love trying new things. So there isn't one, there isn't like one thing that, that it would be like, Oh, this is it. This is what it is. Nah. Okay. But noodles, so- noodles in general, I'm down for noodles and I'm down for rice. I love my carbs. Yeah. Yeah. Carbs are king. 100%. I agree. Uh, so you do eat ramen every day, then, right? Um, not every day, but I mean, I can, it's like, I mean, how many days I, a week? What do you think your average is a week though? Like on a typical week, how many times? <clears throat> it really, it really comes down to like my schedule and like what's going on. And if I have time to in two, in 2020 during the pandemic and travel got shut down, I, I was in Japan for the whole year. So I had a lot of time. So I ate 400 and I think what, 406, 408. I can't remember over 400. Wow. So there were some days where I ate zero, but there were some days where I ate like three or four different shops, you know? Right. Um, so like, yeah, I could eat it every day if I wanted to, but like, yeah, sometimes I go for like a week and I don't eat ramen at all. You know, um, sometimes I'll go like five days and I'll eat like 10 shops in five days. Okay. Um, but I've, I like, I like ramen a lot. Obviously it's like delicious. And it's dope to be able to like re- eat something like that's new, you know, eating a new ramen shop every day. Do you know how much fun that is? Like, it's a lot oh, of fun. Dude. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, out of all the styles, do you have a particularly favorite style or do you just like like them all for different reasons and you just like to switch up the variety or is there one that stands above above the rest? No, I like them all. Um, yeah, maybe some I like more than others, like depending on the mood I'm in for sure. I think usually people, when they first get into ramen, they really like the richer, heavier soups. And then the seasoned ramen eaters that crush like hundreds and thousands of bowls, you start to appreciate the lighter soups more. Um, But I like it all. Yeah. Like that's why one of the reasons why I like ramen is because of the variation and because there's so many different styles. Yeah. Yeah. When you sent me to Yamaguchi, I never had a sort of lighter uh, shoyu type one. Um, and that's that was the, I mean, 
crushing the heavy tonkotsu based ones, the miso based ones. Yeah, but that was, I don't know if you intentionally sent me there or whatever, but to have, and you even told me what bowl to have, right? And and I, ha- I was at the, I was, I get to the machine and it's all in Japanese. I'm like, fuck, how am I, what bowl am I going to, I don't know what bowl Abram told me to get. Luckily, there was a kid looking at me and I was confused and I showed him the bowl that you told me to get. And he's like, oh, it's that one there. And man, it was, it was totally out on another planet from anything that I ever had. So uh, thanks for that. But um, you crushing so many bowls is, is like, not only do you love it, but you're building your brand, right? Obviously, like it's, it's like a double-edged sword. Yes, you love ramen, you enjoy it. You, you know, you love the variety and the depth and everything, but you're building your brand. You want to talk about your ramen beast brand? Because I think it's just started off as a handle, did it not? And then it exploded into the ramen beast app. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, well, I guess I just started. I mean, I started eating ramen just because I loved eating ramen, which is why I still am eating ramen, obviously. But mm-hmm. I think I got to a point where I was eating so much and <clears throat> I kind of I realized as far as English speakers and non-Japanese, you know, there's the, I have access to so much information that's limited to non-Japanese speakers around the world. And a lot of people are hungry for this knowledge. And it's, I don't know, it was like, I just felt like, man, if I don't like take notes or try to organize this data somehow and like get it out to, out there and make it accessible to people, it would almost be like a waste. So that's how, that's kind of how it started. Started out just on Instagram and then just with some friends we developed this app that's like a map, like a curated map. Um, we're going to try to make it better and bigger and, you know, add more features. Obviously, it's a lot of work and we all have like regular jobs and it's still a hobby to us. But yeah, like ramen is my life, you know, like so anyway, I can like invest my time for the cause of like spreading ramen culture like I'm all for it. So yeah. And I'm going to be eating the ramen anyway. So I might as well like take photos of everything I eat and like take notes and, you know, like make, put that online somewhere so that someone that's walking by, you know, knows like, Oh, like this is what's here. Like dope. Now I can go get it myself, you know? So that's pretty much it. So you just mentioned uh, like ramen culture a little bit in, in your answer there. Um, and f- from me, just like digging around, knowing that you're going to, you're coming on and trying to just brush up. Um, I saw that ramen culture is only about just over a hundred years old. So that's like, as far as Japanese food culture goes, not that long. Like there's lots of different Japanese food culture that's been around a lot longer, but when you dig into ramen, it seems like that culture is so important and people take it so seriously. Um, why do you think that in a shorter time than other food cultures in Japan, ramen is skyrocketed the way that it has um, and the culture behind it is so interesting? Uh, and it almost seems like it's more interesting uh, than some of the other stuff. Like, what do you think it is about ramen that in a shorter period of time, it's just hit such a huge height uh, internationally? I think um, ramen got big in Japan, you know, post-war with all the influx of wheat flour. Um, And there was shortages of rice, you know, and suddenly Japan had so much, so much wheat and they had to figure out a way to use it. And ramen was one of the ways. So for years, ramen was blue collar food, cheap cheap blue collar food that you could get during your lunch break from like a street cart that the common people ate and it sustained you for the whole day. So everyone in Japan that grew up after the war kind of has or had this like feeling about ramen. And then for the first time, after the year 2000, ramen became, it made this transformation from a cheap blue collar food to gourmet. 
And there wasn't, it wasn't exactly like one moment, you know, it happened over many years and, you know, Japanese, like they tinker with things and, you know, they experiment and they kind of tweak things and they make them, they perfect them, you know? So, you know, as you know, ramen came from China and like people in Japan made it Japanese. And then over time it morphed into from a blue collar, cheap, fast food to a gourmet food with premium ingredients and exquisite ingredients. So what we have, if you look at ramen like 50 years ago, 60 years ago, it's like just like a couple dollars, some soup, some noodles, like a piece of pork and like fish cake. And that's it. And now, you know, there's like these like premium clams, truffles, wagyu, um, duck, all these wild ingredients. So it is more than it was, you know, for the older generation in Japan. It is more than that now. And now it's like gotten outside of Japan and people are starting to create new ramen culture with non-Japanese ingredients. Like, I think it's just going to transform even more. Um, and I think this is a good thing. So, but yeah, this is, I, I got lucky. I kind of, I moved to Japan in 2004. So I was very lucky to move to Japan right when this like boom, this wild like ramen boom was like peaking in Japan. It, it started happening um, like the early 2000s when all these like new school style shops with the double soups and the triple soups. And then these like different, you know, like uh, sous vide, you know, cooking methods with a chashu. And then you start using the premium, you know, ingredient. So I don't know, it's like, I kind of, I kind of got luck. I kind of lucked out with the timing and I just like got sucked up into this world. And I have been eating ramen like a madman ever since then. And yeah been fucking wild <laughs> crazy yeah, man. it's been a wild ride but let's let's talk a little bit about the, the the huge step you took uh into um becoming a partner in ramen shops want to touch on uh where your shops are how many shops your business partner tell uh want to touch a little bit on that because that was when, when 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 you told me you were going in that direction i was just like okay and obviously i knew that you could make that transition and uh talk to me about that transition talk to me about your locations your shops talk to you a little bit about shono and that whole uh that whole world and how that's going for you yeah so if we shoot back to like around 2010 2011 super randomly i'm at like a local yakitori like drinking spot in my hood. And I met a guy who lo and behold was a writer for a Japanese magazine, Japanese playboy magazine. And he, and he wrote about, yeah, like a bunch of different topics. And one of them was food and ramen. And we started talking about ramen and I blew his mind with how much I knew about the ramen scene in Tokyo. And I was just like a regular foreigner at this time that had been living in Japan like seven years. And he couldn't believe how much I knew about ramen. He was like, yo, time out. I want to start a weekly column in Playboy magazine about you reviewing ramen shops. Like, are you down? And I was like, hell yeah, I'm down. <laughs> so that's how it started. Um, and then after we did that for a few years, there was he asked me, he was like, are there any other ramen geeks like on your level? And there was one other guy who has like a blog, Ramen Adventures, Brian, a buddy of mine. So the article became about us. We were called the Ramen Americans and we reviewed ramen shops for like this went on for like two or three years. After two or three years and the article kind of ran its course. It was, what are we going to do next? Like, do we transition this into like TV or like, you know, book? Like, what do we do? And one of the things that the writer had mentioned, he was like, yo, like, what do you think about like ramen, opening a ramen restaurant in the States? And I was like, well, I don't want to do anything with restaurants. Like, screw that. But mm -hmm. fair. I know 
I know like the food scene in California. I know like the the demand for good Asian food in the Bay Area where I'm from. And I know like how like diverse and like how much of a rich like ethnic scene food scene there is there. And I knew at the time the ramen was pretty bad, you know, in the States. I knew there was a little bit of a ramen presence in New York and L.A., but outside of those two cities, like 2012, 2013, there was like no good ramen in Bay Area, in San Francisco Bay Area. Uh uh-uh. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I talked to this and I was like, I mean, I don't I don't know nothing about running restaurants, but I know if we bring out like a ramen master, like a legit master and we get him set up like there's no way we're not going to crush it. Mm-hmm. So that was like how it started. And these, we took a trip to San Francisco and like I, the whole time I didn't really know if it was really going to go down. And Shono was one of the candidates that the, the, my business partner came up with. And of course I knew Shono because I had been to his restaurants and I was like, yeah, like he's a great talented chef and super creative. And he was very enthusiastic about opening in the States. So we took like a recon trip to SF and like checked out spots and that was it. So, like formed an LLC, ended up like finding a place, signed a lease and boom, it was on. And like, I was like, all right, like, I guess we're going to do this. Like, so <laughs> I had no idea, like no idea what I was getting myself into. I mean, I knew I did not want to get into the restaurant industry and like, I kind of like, I don't know what I, I don't know why or how I signed up for it, but I signed up for it and <laughs> here we are. <laughs> so, so how many shops do you have? So where, so we, where are the shops? Yeah. So we opened Mencho uh, Tokyo in downtown San Francisco in 2016. And we opened Menya Shono in San Rafael, just North of the golden gate bridge earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also a men's show Tokyo in Bangkok that I helped produce that opened in 2018, but I am not an owner of that one. And we earlier this year, it's kind of been doing soft openings, still trying to figure things out because of the current situation with the pandemic. And that is men's show Tokyo, New Delhi in India. Um, and just because the situation in India is kind of like, yeah, not so great. So, yeah, um, we are planning on opening our next restaurant in San Francisco in the Twitter headquarters building um, in a several months later this year. Wow. So wow. that one is coming soon. That's amazing. Yeah. I got um, I got two quick questions. Sorry, one's for you and yeah. one's for Nate. Uh, for you first, Arun, uh when's the one coming to Toronto? Like the Toronto fan base and me and Nate want to know, is that, is that, a, is that in the works or what? Yo, I have never, I'm almost ashamed to say I've never been to Toronto and I, I really would like to go. I've been to Vancouver many times. Love it. I've been to Montreal. Um, but I need to go to Toronto and yo, I would love to open a ramen shop in Toronto. So, so that actually, that piggybacks on my question for Nate. So Nate, how, how do you rate Toronto's uh, ramen scene? And um, if Abram was to come, what, what two shops would you take him to and feel, feel like really comfortable that he would enjoy himself there? Okay, so back to when is he opening up? I was going to ask you, Kyle, like, I'm a freaking dinosaur now, right? You're like, the, uh, you're the young buck moving into shaking, right? Talk to your people and see if you can get, you know, some some business partners for Abram. Honestly, I thought about it and I had a come like, who can I get to freaking put, throw Abram and show some dough to open a shop? But there's nothing that I was confident in doing, right? Um, I think that you guys would absolutely kill here. Um Abram's buddy and partner in crime, um, Hiroshi, who's in a ramen beast in the ramen beast crew. He's been here a couple, three times. We've hooked up several times. Great guy. And he's does the, um, 
the Abram, what's the name of that brand? I'm brain farting Konjiki. right now. It's early here. Konjiki, Konjiki. yeah. So it's the only Michelin star restaurant. Uh, only it's one of the two Michelin guys who have stars in Japan or whatever. I mean, it's okay to me. Um, it's done oh, that's really the, well. That was the guy at that was the guy at Young and Shepherd, right? And then they've got a second shop um, under above a tempura place. So they've got two locations now. Uh, one, the second one's on Elm Street as well, Young and Elm. Oh, that's so, a great, that's um, a great spot. Um, yeah, I mean, you guys. There's a there's a couple of new spots like a new place that popped up. I haven't. That's the place that you sent me call the other day on Instagram. So one of my students said, "Hey chef, this is." A former student, hey, chef, this is a good spot. So that's on my radar. But, you know, it's 90% just tonkotsu stuff. And then when Konjiki opened up, they've got their clam broth. And so everyone went crazy over that. And it was sort of a lighter version. Um, I don't know. The one place that I like is the Raijin, Kyle. That's the place that we always go to. It, it's a, it's a tonkotsu, tonkotsu based, but they really got heavy fish undertones of their broth, like the Naboshi flavor that I absolutely love. That's just in your face with the with the fattiness of the pork broth that's my favorite place and it has been um but uh yeah i mean I, you know once the smoke clears abram you know once the pandemic is done there's going to be another explosion and, and maybe you know toronto will fall off the radar for you because you know you'll be probably getting pulled in so many different directions because i just feel after the post-pandemic um the play, it's just uh, the, the restaurant industry is going to have like a massive boom and it, it's, it's undergoing a facelift right now as well. You know, um, fine dining is going to be, you know, it's almost dead anyways. It'll just be such a small niche market and people don't want to take those risks. So ramen shop is low risk when you're talking about, you know, uh, as a big investment of a 200 seat restaurant with 30 staff and insane overhead, or do you do, uh, you know, 10 seats with takeout and, uh, you know, a small crew, right? So I, I think that it's going to explode, but we'd love to have you here. I mean, outside of ramen shop, you I mean, you, you need to get to the city and check it out for sure. Yeah, we could oh, definitely yeah. go on some food adventures, bro, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And if yeah. and if you feel like it, like we'll uh, with Abram and then Southern Crown and then we'll holler at Chen Chen. Maybe we'll open up a food commissary and we'll see what the fuck's going on then. We can put yeah. that last nail in the in the fine dining coffin. Yeah, because Kyle's opening up a um, like he's based out. He does his catering like he runs his catering company. He's been there ten years, but he's in the midst of opening up. Maybe you should give him a follow. Him uh, Southern Crown. Uh, it's basically. Uh, barbecue and Caribbean food combined, nice. right? So that concept's dope. He's had three or four pop-ups already. Uh, had a great one at a brewery this weekend. I went up and saw him. So they're just shopping locations right now, but uh, super cool concept. But um, okay, yeah, we'll, I we'll, have you, we'll have to get you to Toronto, man. Get you to fall in love with the city. Yeah, we'd love to have you here. I've got a whole basement for you. You can obviously have a place to stay anytime you get here. Um, Here's so Kyle, are we at the random question section now or where are we at brother? Yeah. Like, I mean, I definitely got a few, uh, I know you were saying that Abram's a hip hop guy, basketball guy, shoe guy. So I think we got, I think we got some for sure. Three random questions. So <laughs> I'm a, I'm definitely a sneaker novice. Um, but what's the top three, Abram? What are the three that you hold the highest in your ranking for sneakers? What do you got? We're talking about like models, sneaker models. Yeah, yeah. like I know like you're a big nope. J1 right. guy. Number, so. Yeah, number one for sure is the Air Jordan one. Okay. OG Air Jordan one. And then and the Nike Dunk. Nike Dunk High. Okay. Has a special place in my heart as well. And then not anymore. But the first one of my first real sneaker loves that got me into shoes was the Air Max 95. Okay. The Neon Volt Air Max 95s. Dope, dope. So. I mean, you must be like, because with the with the movement on the ones, I mean, ones and dunks have always been semi-popular. But now, like, every kid on my street who's, like, 10 years old wants ones or dunks, right? Like, what's, you must have, because, I mean, that's always been, since I've known you, dunks, and OG, like you had a lot of like the 85 ones that you that you've got, the original ones. So I yeah. mean, has your business been booming with the ones and the and 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 the dunks? Have you found a, a good boom I, in the past couple of years for you? I mean, as I've invested more time and energy into the ramen game, I've invested yeah. less into the sneaker game. So yeah. 
I wouldn't say I'm like actively like buying and selling ones and dunks and shoes the same way I was maybe like 10 years ago. Yeah. But over the years I have bought and sold a lot of Air Jordan ones for sure. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of dunks. Too. <laughs> a yeah. lot of dunks. How many, how many sneakers do you have in your collection right now? How many pairs? Um, I mean, I, I mean, maybe like around 500 or so, but a lot of the shoes I have are like inventory that I am basically buying with the intention of selling. So Um, as far as your personal goes, what's your uh, prize possession right now? What's your favorite pair that you have right now that you would wear? I mean, I have a few pairs of Air Jordan ones from 85 that like i mean i don't really want to wear them but like as far as like prize possessions some original like air jordan one ajkos um let's see yeah probably the og air jordan ones yeah yeah okay so i got a question who is your your goat or not say your goat who's your favorite warrior of all time Golden State you're, Warrior. You're a warrior guy. I mean, times are tough. Um, before, before, you answer, before you answer, before you answer, just tell us why the answer is Baron Davis. <laughs> That's his favorite player. That's Kyle's favorite player is Baron Davis of all time. True story. Yeah. Well, him and Iverson, but yeah. I think that Baron Davis dunk um, in the playoffs on Kirilenko is one of the top 10 dunks in NBA history. For and the, sure. Yeah, and then he lifts the jersey and he's got the back brace on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the energy, I was not there at that game, but I think the energy in the arena at that moment was probably the peak of the peak of the Oracle in Oakland. I love uh, it. Because after that, it was, you know, they're in San Francisco, it's gone now. But yeah, that was it. Um, favorite warrior of all time. Really difficult question. I yo, I gotta go with Stephen Clay. Yeah, yeah. How can you not? Right. The the, the greatest backcourt in NBA history. Um, Clay is just such a G. Like, like his demeanor and how he's so comical without trying, and how he's like maybe he can get hotter than anyone. Like there's something about clay that is just so legit. It's but, crazy. It's crazy. The combination of Steph and clay. Cause clay is like so unorthodox. And then you look at, or sorry, Steph's so unorthodox. And then you look at clay, shoot the ball. And he looks like if you were to make a machine, the fundamentals of the shot and the way that he gets the ball off. And he just looks like a machine. And then you see Steph do it. And it looks like, like, you know, it's just so unorthodox. So it's funny that they're, maybe two of the best three-point shooters, well, Steph definitely is, of all time, but their techniques are so different, right? It's pretty crazy. And then you add in the fact that plays at least on defense too, right? Yep. Yep. But I'll just give a shout-out to, like, some old classic warriors that I love. Brian Cardinal, the custodian. Yeah, David wow. Wood, David Wood. Um, just, like, hustle guys. Like, yeah. glue, glue guys, like, Draymond, of course, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. That's you. You're the glue guy, right? I, I, I told Kyle like, that we used to play hoops. <laughs> and, I don't know. What are you like? What are you like? 6'2", right? Around there? 6'2", oh, like, 6'3"? Like 6'1", 6'1". Yeah, okay, okay. And then when we're playing in Hong Kong, were you like a buck 80, right? Like you're, yeah. you're not a monster, no, no, no dissing at all. But I'm like, I told Kyle, if you were like 6'8", you would have been a legit pro because you have like – your game's not finesse, right? You're just – you're a beast as well on the court. You just like find the ball and the rebounds, right? I always feel confident I'm putting up a jumper when you're like on my team because you'll just go and gobble up the rebounds. So that's who you are, right? You're like a glue guy and you've got good instinct uh, find getting the rebounds and stuff. So that's what I was telling Kyle. Uh, last question for me. Um, who's the who's the baddest dude you've ever played against in basketball at all? Even high school or in, or in Hong Kong or in, or in Japan? Yeah, he's a guy who when we first met him. He, he, he's charged yeah. you. Have you ever played against NBA guys before? I mean, Dwayne's killer. I'm not downplaying how um, good he is. I was on the floor with uh, Luke Walton because I went to Arizona one time yeah. in a pickup yeah. game. Mm-hmm. I played against – in high school, I played against one of the guys that ended up on the N1 tour, uh, Ballaholic. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we also played against Casey Jacobson in high school. Okay. Um, but yo, Dwayne Kirkley yeah. trumps Dwayne. them all, dude. Yeah, Dwayne that Kirkley guys a really... monster. monster. Yeah. Hey, do you have your own answer for that or what? Who's the hottest <laughs> guy you played against? Who me? Yeah. Well, in 97, I tried, I went on to an open tryout for the national team, not knowing I wasn't going to make it uh, at UFT. And Steve Nash was there and, and uh, he had, he was playing for Dallas at the time. He was just doing like a morale booster. He was in town. So I got like to cover him for maybe two or three shifts. Uh, and How did that go for you? Not well at all. Um, <laughs> he, he put a spin move on. I mean, I caught him on a switch and he, and he put a spin move on me. And talk about explosiveness. And I was like 26 in my prime. And I bounced off this fucking guy. He had that like soccer core. And he was just so strong and explosive. And, and he put a spin on me. And not only did he get past me, he like I just flew off him because I'm like, this guy is like stronger than I could ever imagine. So although it was only like a couple of shifts, I would have to say Steve Nash. Well, that's a pretty good name drop, man. Uh, Abram, just on the basketball, non-warriors, who's your guy? Number one guy of all time, of all time. Yeah. Though, as far as like the guy that I model my game after, I don't know. I don't want to say like off the court antics, but on the court, Dennis Rodman. Yeah, dude, that's you. That's you to a team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I got one more random uh, just because Nate said you're a hip hop head too. What's the, what's your guy? Who's your guy or who's your group? What's the, okay. if you listen to somebody, who is it? Wu-Tang Clan, Wu-Tang. Um, but not anymore. That was like, Wu-Tang was like, that got me into like, that was my first real love in hip hop. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's another era. I'm not like still bumping new Wu tracks that they're dropping these days, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Who yeah, are you yeah. listening well, to now? Me and Kyle are huge into that Buffalo click, the Benny the Butcher and West Side Gun and Conway the Machine. You, you peep those guys yet out of Buffalo? Oh. They're super dope. Yep. Yeah. Um, I like I like Currency a lot. Yeah, I like Young Currency Roddy. Did some tracks with those guys too, eh? Yeah. Currency Young Roddy. Yeah, <laughs> I like uh, uh, what's his name? Shababy. Mm-hmm. It from uh, what Chicago and Atlanta? Shababy. I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. What am I? What am I bumping these days? <clears throat> Idiot. Get on that new Benny. Hey, Cal, that new Benny track is just ridiculous, man. Yeah, show us to Zelda. I know they're listening. (laughs) I think that's it, Uh, Kyle. Yeah. Um, Abram, dude, thank you so much for your time, man. And get out there post-quarantine and keep doing what you're doing. Um, Again, you always have a spot to visit Toronto. We would love to get you and Shono here. You guys would absolutely kill here for sure. Uh, there's definitely room for improvement here and growth in the ramen game. Any final plugs you want to give any plugs? I mean, you're about like a self plug anyways, you don't need to plug anything. You just do your thing. What's uh, what's your next move. You're, you're leaving quarantine. What, what's any plugs or anything you want to, um, to mention? No, nah, I just want to plug that. It's not easy running ramen restaurants. And <laughs> yeah. Yo, I just want to, I want to hammer this point home because there's a lot. It's easy. I don't say it's easy. But it's not it's not difficult to get money to open a restaurant. It is difficult to find people that are willing to work hard and run them and really put their heart and soul into it and care. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like that's the challenge, you know, keeping the consistency. Um, now, on top of that, with ramen, ramen shops in Japan are like 10 seat operations and the chefs specialize in ramen in one thing. Yeah. When you bring that overseas, like you, can you really make money opening up like a, you know, a 10 seat ramen only restaurant in like a big city like Toronto or New York where rent is crazy? No, the only way it works is by opening up like larger restaurants, expanding the menu. You have to add like appetizers. You have to add like drinks and it ends up screwing with the chefs, these guys that only know how to make ramen suddenly get thrown out of their comfort zone, have to like basically operate an entire restaurant with like front of the house, back of the house. So 
anyway, this was one thing that we didn't really get to talk about that just before we end it, I just wanted to slide this in and be like, yo, like ramen is not easy. Running restaurants are not easy, but yo, we're going to make it happen. And ramen is going to get better and better. Can't wait to see you guys in Toronto. Yes. I'm out. All right, boots. Well, thank you so much, Abram. Keep in touch, man. Uh, oh, some new sound effects. Loving it, Kyle. Um, so yeah, so thanks, uh, thanks again, Kyle, for for spearheading this from beautiful vantage venues. Kyle McClure, my boy Abram Plout, Ramen Beast, uh, all those George Brown kids. Keep following this dude. He's a, a huge inspiration uh, to me specifically, but uh, just anybody who just wants to follow their dreams, man. You do what you love as a career, dude. So kudos to you. Um, so we've got a beautiful outro, Kyle. So we out of here, Abram. Thank you so we're much. Out of here, Kyle. Abram. Now that you now that you did this, we're boys now. So when you come to Toronto, we're gonna have to get into some beers into some food, all right, bud? I love it. Come all by right. later, guys. All right, we out of here. Yo, what happened to peace? Peace, 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 peace. peace. peace.